Welcome to Body Talk with the Nihilist. Body Talk is a new series of podcasts exploring sex, sexuality, sexual health, and sex culture, with very upfront, explicit language from the get-go, and all done from a very, very queer perspective. This week on Body Talk, I'm going to be doing another solo show for you. That means it's not going to have any guest. I'm just going to be blabbing at you on my own for however long it takes. And the subject of this edition of Body Talk is something that's very close to my heart and also very close to my hand, and that is pornography. Porn, jizz, jazz, smut. Erotica. Blue. Trying to think of other euphemisms for pornography. Uh, Hmm. Let's just call it porn. I think porn is the easiest umbrella term for me to encapsulate things that are sexually explicit and designed to erotically arouse. That's the parameters of what I'm talking about using the term porn this week. I do recognise that porn itself It's quite a broad spectrum. There's a lot of different things that fall within that category. We'll discuss that in a little bit. And as ever, the language you're going to be hearing on Body Talk with the Nihilist, very explicit, very upfront, no holes barred, perhaps some descriptions of sex acts, and definitely it will have a queer and homosexual bent, for want of a better word. Now, if that is not your kind of thing, you have been warned, so either tune out now, Or listen and don't complain. One of the beauties of sex as a subject to talk about and to create a podcast around, for me anyway, is that sex as a topic very neatly straddles the line, very carefully and neatly straddles the line between subjectivity and objectivity in terms of there is an objective world of sex that we can talk about and its relationship to culture at large. But then there's a very subjective internal life that each individual person has in relation to sex as a thing and as a topic, and in their own mind, what turns them on, what turns them off, that kind of thing. Porn, to me, is a great subject to really get into this, and I will be getting very into this. So if you're somebody who knows me and you don't really want to know about what turns me on, what turns me off, what I get off on. Now it's probably the best time to turn this podcast off because I'm going to be going very deeply into my own personal relationship to porn. I'm also going to be talking about my kind of objective view of how porn exists in our larger culture and society and the relationships that that society has to various kinds of porn. And I'm also going to be talking directly about something from my own experience that relates to all of this in not a great way, but it's a very instructional story that I want to tell. That'll be coming up in the second half of the show. But as ever, to start off with a big hat tip to Gordon White at Rune Soup, I'm going to ask myself the initial question that I ask every guest that comes on to Body Talk. That question is, do you remember the first time? So, Niall, I am going to ask myself, Niall, do you remember the first time? And as we're talking about porn, I'm going to modify the question to, Niall, do you remember the first time you saw some hardcore porn? Yeah, I do. I have a very clear recollection of it, actually. Um, I'm going to make the distinction here of saying that the hardcore porn that I remember seeing for the first time was a live-action film. 
as opposed to pictures in a magazine. Oh, and I'm also going to make the distinction that what to me defines hardcore porn is seeing an erect penis and also probably seeing that penis entering into an orifice, most usually a vagina, could be an anus or it could be a mouth. So there has to be a boner and it has to be being used in a sexual context, not just posing with a boner. That to me is the definition of hardcore porn. Now, I remember seeing when I was a kid, guys at school had brought in porn mags. So we had seen some kind of like 2D non-moving porn a few times. Uh, Mostly it was women, which didn't really interest me. I mean, I was kind of interested from a very kind of like, oh, so that's what it is. That's what a vagina looks like. But it didn't, it didn't turn me on. It didn't make me horny. There were a couple of magazines, though, that did have um, naked men posing with boners. And yeah, that did make me horny. That was kind of how to describe it. That was what I was looking for. That's what I wanted to see when it came to pornography and sexually explicit material that is used to the effect of turning someone on. What I wanted to see and what would turn me on was willies and boners. It's fair enough. I'm a gay man now. And my taste may have become a bit more refined in the intervening years, but I will talk about that later. I also want to make the point at this stage that to me at that point in my life and in that specific place where I was growing up at that time and in that culture... A picture of a heart of hard on was like a magical gold dust thing that just didn't exist. We had such a so little dialogue about sex in our general day to day lives, and sex was seen as something that was so hidden and so secret that to be able to access imagery, sexually explicit imagery, was this incredibly rare and very very exciting thing. And from my point of view, I know most of the other kids were looking at like wanting to see straight sex. I wasn't wanting to see that. So even within the world of being shown hardcore porn when I was like, I'm talking about like 13, 14 year old at this point, I wasn't really able to see what it was I wanted to see, which is, as if you've listened to the show, you'll know it's fat old men. But I did still have an interest in seeing a boner, a man's hard on, because that was something that was so excluded from the culture that we were a part of then, is just seeing a sexually aroused male member. That was the only, like, you could see full frontal women relatively often in in culture and, say, in TV and in the cinema, and you could buy Playboy and stuff like that in the shops. But a full frontal of a man, like, regardless if he has an erection, but a full frontal of a man was very, very rare, and it seemed to be much more of a censored image than a full frontal of a woman would be. So even then, to add the arousal aspect where you're looking at a man full frontal and he's got a lob on, That was a very, very rare and exciting thing to see for me at that point in my life. Now, obviously, my life has changed a lot more and porn has become much more easily available. And also, I feel central to our lives at this point. But I do want to make the point that at that point in the, that would have been the early 90s, I guess, um, in my school life, that this was a really exciting thing. So the first few images of hardcore porn by my definition of what it was that I wanted to see, probably didn't even have men that I found attractive, but the fact that they were just showing off their hard-ons and their erect penises, that was exciting enough for me. But back to the question in hand. (laughs) Niall, do you remember the first time you saw a hardcore porn film? Yes, I do. So I would have been 15 years old when this happened. And this didn't happen in my native Ireland. This happened in France, where I was on a language exchange organised by my school. 
I was living with um, a French boy and his family. His name is Julien. And we were living on, I believe it was, oh, the Rue, no, it wasn't Rue Saint-Denis. That was somewhere else. No, the name escapes me now. But I do remember we were living in Versailles and you would step out of Julien's flat onto the main Rue, which is right there, look to your right. And at the bottom of that road was the Palace of Versailles. And it was stunning. So I was living with Julian, his single parent dad, and his older sister. And they're all really cool, really nice people, really kind of down-to-earth friendly. I remember it was my first experience of living in a flat, because up to this point, I'd only ever lived in a house. So this was quite a weird experience for me, living in a major urban conurbation in one of the major capital cities on the planet, Paris, France. back and telling the story now is the difference in the acceptance of sex within the culture in France and my home culture in Ireland. So how did I get to see this porn? Well, as kind of happens in a lot of different places in a lot of different countries at that time, there was a, a sex channel on the TV and it was broadcast from, I think it was about midnight or it could have been about 2am and it would go out and it would be, but it would be glitched up. They'd put a lot of fuzz and stuff on top of it so that you couldn't really see the imagery that was being broadcast. You had to buy a special box that you would attach to the telly and it would decode the image. This is all very straightforward stuff. I don't think it needs much more explanation. I think you get it, right? So, there was a channel being broadcast on French TV that at a certain point in the night turned into hardcore porn. Hardcore porn would come on it, and you needed a box to decode this channel and to watch it. Now, Julien, who I was living with, he had a single-parent dad who was away a lot of the time because he was working, but he also had an aunt and an uncle that lived not very far away. They had one of these boxes, and I remember there being a conversation between Julien and his uncle, Julien asking his uncle if he could borrow this box because there was something being broadcast on the telly that he wanted to watch and he would like to tape it. Of course, his uncle knew what was going on. He knew that his nephew wanted to watch some of this hardcore porn that was being broadcast because, you know, he was of the correct age to be masturbating a lot and to be thinking about sex quite a lot. I mean, we all were at that point. We were blossoming into our pubescent sexualities. What strikes me looking back now at this was the acceptance of this as a fact of life in French life. What Another thing that I remember about France at the time was the lack of restrictions on access to alcohol for kids our age. So we would go out for a meal and it would be quite a regular thing that would be offered a glass of wine. My own parents had strictly prohibited me from ever drinking alcohol until I was 18 years old. This is something that became quite an issue between me and my parents because I was a year younger than everyone else in my class at the time. So there were a lot of them when we reached, when they reached the ages of 18, were allowed to drink in kind of like after rugby matches, whether we won or lost, the uh, the captain would actually break out, like let them have a couple of beers because they were of the age. But I wasn't allowed to by my parents' standards, even though all my peers were. So looking back on the story about how I saw my first porn in France, I'm struck by the liberalism of French culture at that point compared to the conservatism and the repression that I was subject to living in Ireland at that time. So anyway, Julian got the decoding box off his uncle, he taped the porn off the telly and the next day I saw some of it. What I remember from the porn is um, a lady who had big frizzy dark hair she was obviously using quite a lot of hairspray. She talked something into the camera that I couldn't understand. 
Then she turned around to face a quite a large erect penis and she put it into her mouth. And that was my first time that I saw an actual sex act being videoed and broadcast for erotic and pleasure-based consumption. Another thing that I remember seeing on that particular VHS being broadcast that night was a show that was like a review of porn movies that were coming out. Or maybe it was porns that were being broadcast on the channel and this was a preview style show. But whatever it was, it was reminiscent of, if you're of a certain age, you might remember the BBC Two show Rapido, which starred Antoine de Caen, who went on to present Eurotrash. It was very similar to Rapido in that it was a French TV presenter looking straight into a camera, talking very fast, and it would be intercut with clips of the porn movies he was talking about and giving his reviews of. This seemed really to an Irish boy of 15 years old who had come from a very conservative repressed sexual background. This seemed really out there in terms of oh wow so not only is porn being openly consumed by people in France they're actually to the point where they're reviewing it they're talking about it they're creating a dialogue around porn. This seemed a really alien but actually really positive thing to me as well because it came back to actually normalizing people's sexualities. However, speaking about normalizing people's sexualities, I have more to reveal about my first time and my encounters with porn growing up because as I've already stated, the kind of men that I actually find sexually attractive quite regularly are excluded from mainstream porn because their bodies are not seen as attractive or desirable. Those kinds of men, the kind of man I am too, tend to be fat and hairy, known as bears or chubs. So there is more to the unveiling of my first time encountering porn than just the first time I saw a woman putting a really big hard willy into her mouth. Because to be honest, seeing a woman put a really big hard willy into her mouth there wasn't that much of a turn on, even though I was excited to see a big hard willy. And looking back on it now, that was another mental image that processed in my brain and caused me to masturbate furiously for weeks and weeks and weeks, just knowing that, like, oh my god, there's people watching and there's, like, people taping and broadcasting their own selves having sex. That was something I found very exciting. So the excitement of seeing porn for the first time really got me going. However... Discovering the kind of porn where the bodies that I wanted to see, where the bodies that I found attractive, that was the next stage. And this is the point where I want to talk about why I don't really like discussing porn with straight, especially straight heteronormative people. Because this is the point where my definition, but also how I use porn and the place that it takes in my life very much diverges from the vast majority of people who just access your common garden, wham, bam, thank you, man, man sticks it in a woman, comes the end, porn. What you should realise by now, when you put it into the context of mainstream heteronormative porn, that the kind of porn that I am attracted to, that I consume and perhaps even create, is niche porn. It's very much niche porn. This all comes back to, in the first episode I talked about, for me, one of the aspects of queerness that defines queerness is outsiderness. And this very much comes back to that facet of being an outsider, not seeing in mainstream sexual culture the things that you are attracted to, and having to create that space for yourself. 
at the top of this episode, I talked about sex being a great arena to discuss the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. And this is where that point comes into play very much. If you are the kind of person that is willing to accept an objective definition of beauty and you seek pornography that reflects that objective definition of beauty, for instance, people are thin, the women have big boobs, the men have six packs and short hair, are smooth, the women are also smooth and trimmed, they don't have hair on their bodies, and if they have a pubic bush area, it's usually very, very trimmed and very light. That, to me, is an objective definition of beauty because that is the beauty that is being sold to us as acceptable by mainstream culture. However, as I can constantly talk about on this show, there is also subjective definitions of beauty because I don't find any of those things I've just mentioned attractive. I don't find them repulsive because I'm living in a society where I am being told so much that those things are attractive that I have looked at them and gone, hmm, they don't attract me, but I'm forced to look at them so much that they don't really unattract me either. I'm not repulsed by them, but they just don't actually get me going. They don't get my juices flowing. They don't give me a hard-on and they don't make me horny. What does make me horny is stuff that is very much outside that objective definition of beauty. And this doesn't just relate to being heterosexual or homosexual. The vast majority of homosexual pornography that is shown and broadcast and sold in modern culture also doesn't do anything for me. Just because there are men having sex with men, they're not the kind of men that I'm attracted to. So that pornography does nothing for me either. The kind of men I am attracted to are typically the kind of men who've been excluded from conversations about sex or having their body seen as being desirable because they do not match up to mainstream quote-unquote objective beauty standards. The kind of men that really turn me on and the kind of man that I am are fat, um, older, tend to be more hairy, um, etc. They're called bears, like I've already described, because they kind of resemble what you think a bear would be like if they were transmuted into a human form. So I'm coming to pornography not just as a gay person, but also as an outsider within objective beauty standards. The kind of porn that is very important to me, that actually I lust after and that I like to consume, like I said before, it's niche, but it also means that the people who produce this have to have eked out their own little niche within a much larger, larger, that was a nice little Freudian slip there, a much larger sexual landscape, and one that traditionally has been blocked off to them. So with the ubiquity of traditionally quote-unquote objectively beautiful straight heteronormative porn, about my more subjective experience of porn and what that has meant to me in terms of being able to find and recognize the kind of desires that I previously thought had been outsider, the communities that form around those so-called outsider desires, and the self-acceptance that I find within myself having that kind of desire validated. 
And when I say validated, I don't just mean finding pornography featuring the kind of men that I find attractive. For me, it's also got to do with having the kind of body that is central to that form of desire. And seeing fat, hairy men presented in a sexually acceptable form validated and framed something that, for me, for one of the first times in my life, my body was not seen as something that was repulsive and vulgar and unhealthy, but actually something that was beautiful and attractive and worthy of desire. So that's the context as to why I find it so hard to talk to straight people about porn. And I also want to make the point that when I say straight, I don't necessarily mean heterosexual people as well. I use the word straight in the way that John Waters uses the term straight. Him and his Dreamlander crew from the early 70s would use it to mean um, square, basically. So when someone like John Waters says that somebody is straight, he doesn't mean necessarily that they're heterosexual. He means that they're square. They don't have the same kind of outsider transgressive values as the other people within his crew and his community. And that's how I mean uh, straight when I use it too. Being aware that the vast majority of people who are straight as in square are also going to be straight as in heterosexual because them's just the odds. That's how it breaks down. The percentage of everything is always dominated by heterosexuals. Homosexuals tend to be a minority and somewhere in the middle are all you beautiful bisexuals. And bearing in mind that proportionality, how that ratio of heterosexual to homosexual to bisexual breaks down to be pretty much always dominated by the heterosexual, it is understandable why people's general conception of porn always defaults to the heterosexual mode. But there are things within the heterosexual mode and the mainstream mode of pornography that I think are inherently problematic that are not faced by gay and niche porn. And having said that, I guess that there's also aspects of certain kinds of heterosexual porn that also come from the transgressive outsider point of view, and they can overlap with gay porn as well. But I think it is important to recognise the problems of heterosexual mainstream porn in terms of when a sexual scenario is played out between a man and a woman... Because we live in a patriarchal society, there always is going to be a certain imbalance of power there that is not faced by a sexual scenario where it is two men. That's not to say that a sexual scenario between two men doesn't have imbalances of power built into that as well. But to me, they're a bit more balanced than they are in their heterosexual. And I guess that does break down to the actual gender of the performers. There are other aspects of niche porn, specifically niche porn, that can apply to heterosexual and homosexual pornography as well. One of the things that I think makes it a bit less problematic than mainstream porn is the target audience for niche porn is a lot smaller than the target audience for mainstream porn. So you find that the people who perform these kinds of porn for these smaller niche audiences tend to be the kind of people who are a lot more enthusiastically involved in doing that performance for that audience because they know that the outreach is limited and it's maybe not necessarily something that's going to make them a lot of money. So from that point of view, I think it is less common to find exploitation of performers within niche pornography than it is within mainstream pornography. And again, that's not to say that exploitation doesn't exist within the world of niche porn. I'm sure it does, just as it exists in every facet of life. 
What I'm trying to say is that you much less frequently see people engaged in this kind of niche porn performance doing things that they otherwise might not like to do. Another point that's worth making here is that the production values of niche pornography tend to be a lot smaller than those of mainstream pornography, and that is because there is a much smaller pool of money to draw upon to finance these productions. But what that also means is that niche pornography tends to be the first to uptake on new technology that becomes available. And what has happened in, say, the last 10 to 15 years is, in my opinion, a kind of democratization of the production of pornography. And what that democratization means in a practical sense is a much larger broadening of the aesthetics of what is acceptable within porn. That means that niche creators are able to find niche audiences a lot more quickly and readily and easily than they would have done in an era when porn was distributed either on film in the cinema or on VHS or even on the telly. Which brings me back to talking about my initial experience of my first time ever seeing a hardcore porn, which was on a VHS, which was taped off the telly as opposed to the first time I saw an actual bear porn, where the kinds of men I'm attracted to were having sex with each other for pornographic gratification. I can still remember what that film was. It's produced by Bear Films. It came out in about 2005 or 2006, I think, and the easiest way to find it at that time, and still, was on the internet through the bearfilms.com website. That film was called Bear Voyage. It's become a bit of a bear classic in the world of bear porn. And I still watch this to this very day. The scene between Scott Irish and Venice Cub is still all kinds of crazy hotness. And you can find that nowadays on Pornhub, I think is the easiest way to find Bear Voyage now. The uh, further democratization of porn is something I'm going to get into more in the second half of the show. But if you do doubt what I've been saying about the acceptability of fat bodies within mainstream homosexual aesthetics, then try and find um, like an archive of vintage gay porn and homosexual erotica. There's a few of these out there. You can find them on Twitter and stuff where they um, find mags and stuff from like the 60s and the 70s, very underground material from the time. But they scan them and archive them for the queer histories. But try and find one of those that are explicitly sexual and have a look through it if you want and try and count how many fat bodies you will see in vintage gay erotica. Because the truth is, there's really not a lot. The fat body only really became acceptable within mainstream homosexual sexual aesthetics from around the mid-90s onwards, specifically with the launching of the porn mag Bear magazine and the solidification of bears and bear desire as an actual subculture. And so I'm going to round out this half of the show by telling you about another first for me in my experience of gay, my particular kind of gay desire, but also the larger world of gay porn and how that fits into my gay desire. And that is the first time I ever heard the term bear. Again, it happened in France when I was living in Paris as part of a language exchange. And I have to stress to you, the listener, that at this point in my life, I didn't realise that my gay desire for big, fat, hairy men was in any way acceptable or even was something that was shared by other gay people who were out there. 
Like I said before, I conceived of my gay desire at this point in my life as being completely outsider, and I felt very alienated from all kinds of sex cultures, whether they be straight or gay, because I didn't see them as recognising my desire as valid. So for me, reading about the term bear in a magazine and suddenly finding that my desire was validated was a big deal. And the magazine that I read the term bear in was not a porn mag or anything sexual. It was actually a music magazine. And again, I am a music person at heart. Music is the uh, art form that I feel has taught me the most as I progress through my life. And this is one of the reasons why. The magazine was, it doesn't exist anymore. It was a British music magazine that was quite popular in the 90s. It was called Select. And in this particular edition of Select, there was an interview with the all-female rock band L7, who are an amazing band, still one of my favourite bands to this day. But in the interview, they had just released an album called Hungry for Stink. And the interviewer asked them, where did the name Hungry for Stink come from? I'm not sure which one of the members of L7 answered, but the answer that they gave changed my life. They said that the term Hungry for Stink had come from a porn magazine they had found called Bear Magazine that was aimed at big, fat, hairy, gay men. That was me. I mean, at this point in my life, I probably wasn't old enough to be that hairy, but I already knew how much I loved beards and that when I was old enough to have one, I would have a beard for the rest of my life, which I still do. And for that reason, I will forever be grateful to the band L7 for letting me know that as a fat, hairy gay man who finds sexual and romantic attraction in other fat, hairy gay men, that I wasn't alone in the world. In fact, there was so many of us out there that we even had a magazine dedicated to our desire and even a name, the name Bear. So, indie rock music, so much to answer for a... Okay, I'm going to take a break here. I've been talking quite a long time now, nearly half an hour. It's time for a bit of a breather. I am going to play some music, but unfortunately I'm not going to play L7 as much as I would love to because I think putting that in the middle of the show might cause copyright infringements. So instead, I'm going to play a piece of my own music. And after this, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a tale of how I created some porn of my own with another person, but it didn't go exactly to plan as I had conceived it. So stay tuned. After the break, I'll be talking about my experience directly of making porn. <laughs> 